Please turn to Psalm 27. I'll be reading Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Lord, may those words be at least in seed form genuine within each of our hearts. And we know that only happens because of the cross of Christ who came to rescue us out of darkness in order to see this beautiful light of Your glory. Help me unfold that truth this morning to the glory of Your name in the joy of our hearts towards You. Amen. This is the second week on the series The Core Values of Sovereign Grace Fellowship. Last week we began core value number one, God. And we will continue on core value number one this week. We saw that the foundation of everything is God, not us. Last week in some... What we saw was that if we assume God, we will lose the actual God in the midst of our company. And when we do that, eventually everything else about life, marriage, what Christianity really is, what church is, it will all get off track. I concluded last week that our task is to live to the glory of God, which at its essence means to see Him as He's revealed Himself in the Scripture and in Jesus Christ and to deeply love, admire, desire, and depend upon Him. As the Apostle Peter put it in his first epistle, though you have not seen Him, Jesus in the flesh, as Peter did, yet you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And you are obtaining the outcome of that faith the salvation of your souls. But I said last week, that experience of what it means to be a true Christian, as Peter laid out there, that awe, that love, that joy in God through Christ, that is not the foundation of Christianity. But God is the foundation. 
as we saw with the illustration of the Grand Canyon and all the times that I have visited it and hiked down into the midst of it, that canyon existed long before I existed. Long before I was born. The glory of the Grand Canyon was there. And it would be so wrong to hike down in the middle of it and to be, like I should be, overwhelmed with awe and wonder and joy and serenity and massiveness in my heart and then to say, my experience is the glory of the Grand Canyon. It's not. The glory of the Grand Canyon is in the Grand Canyon. My experience is the appropriate response to it. And that's why I take the admonition of Richard Baxter from the 1600s very seriously when he writes, It is the first and the great work of ministers of Christ to acquaint men and women with that God made them and He is their happiness. To open to them the treasures of His goodness and to tell them of the glory that is in His presence which all His chosen people shall enjoy having shown them then the right goal which is God, our next work as ministers is to acquaint them with the right means of attaining it. And a present day brother, Steve Lawson, writes, only when our vision of God is restored will our lives and churches be put right. A high view of God leads us to see that the church is not a corporation, but a congregation. It's not a business, but a body. It's not a factory, but a family. In such a church, God works primarily not through hyped events and programs and entertainment or even strategically designed plans per se, but He works through His Word and by His Spirit in the converted. End quote. And so the conclusion of last week's sermon was that the foundation of the Christian life is God Himself. And at the core of Christian living is to be satisfied. In him. As Psalm 73 declares, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And one of the main points of the book of, of Job gets to the core of this reality. You remember Satan comes to God and says, Job doesn't really love you. He just loves the stuff you give him, like family and wealth. And God said to Satan, you're wrong. Job is mine. He's born 
of the Spirit. Job has tasted and seen that the Lord is good to him, and I will prove it to you. And so, here's the transition from last week, part one, to part two on God. Last week, God is the personification of real happiness. God is to be our happiness. And so that leads us to go way back and ask the question, who is God? So, I'm going to ask you, if you have a thinking cap, put it on. Try not to daydream or you will be lost. And the reason I'm going to do what I'm going to do, I don't think I'm the only human being in the world, but what I am going to do over the next 35, 40 minutes has been the most practical everyday truth for my life over the last, what is it, 20 years now. So think about it. For God to be in a position to be the everlasting, eternal spring of our happiness, He must be eternally and infinitely and gloriously happy Himself. Contented. He must be the One who is, that is by definition, absolutely needless. See, if God were not infinitely and omnipotently happy, joyful, whatever word's going to work. Don't get tripped up on words of, well, happiness is different than joy. Don't do that. We're not talking about fleeting pleasures. We're talking about true and eternal and the essence of contented bliss. How do you imagine that? See, if He were not that, but in some way the eternal God were a gloomy gust, He could not be the source of the happiness we seek and of what the Gospel promises us. I could spend 20 weeks talking about God, talking about His incommunicable attributes like eternality and omnipotence and omniscience and His communicable attributes like holiness and love. But here's the point. They will eventually all boil down to this unchanging reality that God by definition is absolutely self-sufficient in need of nothing outside of Himself. So let's think through this slowly. I think it is a self-evident truth. That's an axiom. In other words, an axiom or self-evident truth means to think that that's not true is absolutely absurd. 
So I think it's a self-evident truth that God is omniscient and omnipotent. And therefore, He is by nature infinitely happy, completed, contented. In other words, God in His omniscience means all knowledge, past, present, future. There's nothing ever to be known that He doesn't know absolutely fully. His wisdom and His knowledge and all His power and ability, He has omnipotence to act upon all His wisdom and all His knowledge. God is, in other words, He who has existed without beginning in any way He deems best. Not one smidgen less than best. God's omniscience, along with His omnipotence, His ability to enact it, God's wisdom has always caused Him to be infinitely, fully, omnipotently happy. Why do I say that? Because to think that God somehow has ordered all of His internal affairs in such a way that resulted in Him being less than infinitely and omnipotently happy is an absurd thought. See, the only other option is that God, who has by definition the know-how, and the ability to enact the know-how to be fully happy, ended up somehow being less than fully happy. And that would be like saying, a square circle. It's absurd. And so from that self-evident truth about God's eternal happiness, the logical conclusion that is backed up all over the Bible is this. You've got to answer the question, what is it about God that therefore must be true for Him to be infinitely complete, happy, and contented? The answer is, He must be He who has always, with all His omniscience, knowledge, and all of His might delighted in what is of supreme delightfulness. He must be He who always, with nothing less than His omnipotence, loved and adored and got His fill from that which is supremely valuable. Which happens to be Himself. For God to ignore or look elsewhere to meet His happiness desire, He'll look to something else other than that which is supremely happy-making valuable would be sinful. It would be idolatry. Because it would be a failure to value 
what is of supreme value. And so God, with His omniscience, His knowledge of everything, fully and completely and absolutely, He would know what is supremely valuable. He would know what is the object of complete satisfaction. And therefore to think that God would look away from that object that is most worthy, that is the most satisfying reality in existence. And to be fully happy is an absurdity. You can't look away from the source of full happiness and be fully happy. Okay. Hold that in your hopper there. Let's take it a little further. Because God is omniscient, all-knowing, and has all power, meaning ability to do whatsoever He wants to do, because of that, God has a completely clear and absolutely and eternally undistorted knowledge of Himself. It's so clear because it is God's knowledge of God. He's not finite like us. It is so absolutely clear that God, as a subject, beholds Himself as His own object. Not like a photocopy that is somewhat diminished, though you can't tell by the naked eye. Not like a reflection in a mirror that is somehow not quite you who stands before the mirror. But it is the exact image of His divine essence in nature that He by definition, as God has always beheld, as a subject, beholds an object. Let me reach for some type of human analogy. Once in a while, I'm in a room by myself, and then a family member comes in and says, Who are you talking to? It's embarrassing. Because they don't see anybody, and I'm like most of you, talking to myself. We are made in God's image, but we're very finite. We reflect something. We're very much like Him and very much unlike Him. And like Him, we do consider ourselves. We're self-conscious. In other words, we contemplate ourselves as a subject contemplates an object, and some of us even talk to the object. When the object talks back, we might be in trouble. We do that, but we're finite. It's all distorted. None of us knows ourselves truly and infinitely and purely and omnisciently. Uh Uh-uh. But God's not us. He is eternal. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. 
that as he sees and loves the image of himself perfectly and completely, so much so that God by definition has always stood forth as his own personified object, as the subject is worshipped and adored all the divine nature in his object that stood forth from him face to face. And thus God, for all eternity, meaning without beginning, has been with all of His might and power, omnipotently delighting in His own perfections as a subject loves and delights in the object of His affections. As the Father has from all eternity beheld and loved the Son. And the Son, up against the Father, has beheld and loved the Father. The object that God the Father, the subject has beheld, has by definition always been co-eternal. Co-equal in essence. He is the second person. Not the first person. Distinct from the Father. The second person of the Godhead. He is the image as the object is to the subject who beholds it. Hebrews 1 begins this way. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, Jesus whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also created the world. He, that person, Jesus the Christ, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Let me pull off it just for a second. So when we refer to that historical man who is very man, Jesus from Nazareth, we do not mean a created being. When we talk about who is Christ, He is fully human and He is fully divine. We don't mean heresies like modalism. In other words, there's only one God. There's not three distinct persons, but you know, God puts on the Father hat, and then He puts on the Son hat, and then He puts on the Holy Spirit hat. Like, I, I put on a pastor hat, I put on a dad hat, and I put on a husband hat. Different relationships and roles, but one person. That's, that, that's heresy. It's not what we're referring to. We're not talking about adoptionism, that Jesus was this supreme human being who had His baptism. God adopted into the divine nature somehow. Yet that person, Jesus, was not eternal without beginning. That's not what we're referring to. We're not talking about the heresy of Arianism. 
where Jesus is so far superior to every creature ever created. And yet, He was still created. No. That's what those people called Jehovah Witnesses are proclaiming when they come to your door. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about who God is and has never been anything other than at least a diunity. The Father. Beholding and loving and adoring Son and the Son, the Father, and are absolutely complete. And so, the delight and the fullness of joy that the Father has in the Son, in the Son, in the Father, you can be assured of this. It is so infinitely full and all-powerful. He has not failed to worship Himself and love Himself fully that that community of Father and Son and Son to Father is so pure. The joy and the contentment is so omnipotent that God has by definition in that community of love and worship always stood forth as the distinct third person of the community of the Godhead personified. This is the nature of God. From all eternity, He has always been and has never ever been anything less than Trinity. Absolutely self-sufficient, needless. This is where I want to just have quiet for 60 minutes. Just think. But we can't. It's going to get really hot in here, so... We take the next step now. If you bought what I have just said, and you ought to at least buy this. God is absolutely needless and self-sufficient. Then here comes one of the most massive questions that any thinking Christian, which ought to be every Christian by definition, every thinking Christian needs to ask. If God is needless and contented, then why did He create? What moved Him? You see, we, we as creatures, this is where we just, our minds just go, they sizzle out. I mean, all we know is need by definition. We have huge lack constantly in our lives. We crave satisfaction. I need something outside of myself. Food. Water. Companionship. Soul satisfaction. We know what that is. But God's not like that. See, Paul lays out the difference between us creatures and the only one Creator this way at the end of Romans 11. For who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer is no one outside of the Lord. Or 
has been his counselor. God, let me tell you what you ought to do. Absolutely. No one. Or who has given to God a gift that now, God, somehow you owe me. Answer, no one. And Paul ends it this way. Because from Him and through Him and reflected back to Him are all things. And, and this last little line is not a throwaway Christianese line. Paul meant it. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Okay, let's go back to the question. Why did He create? Well, let, let, let me talk about a couple of terms, if I will, just for a minute or two. Let's say it this way. When it comes to everything external to God, which by definition is all creation, He does everything freely. Meaning, not under compulsion from anything outside of Himself. Meaning, not from a lack that He has within Himself. Okay, stop for a second. This helped my daughter yesterday when I talked about this, so I'm going to do it with you, though I didn't originally have it in my notes. I mean He does everything freely like we do things freely. We do what we call free acts as opposed to necessary acts. Let me give an example of a necessary act. Numbers of times in my life, because of my heredity mainly, I do floss and brush my teeth. I must have had, I don't know now, but nine root canals. I willingly go there eventually. Why? Because I'm in so much pain. Please take it away. But it's not a free act. It's a necessary act. I don't go to the dentist for the pure joy of being stuck with needles and having him take files and go up those nerves. And, and I don't do it for the joy that's in the experience of that. I do it for, as a means to another end to get the relief and the peace I want. See, that's a necessary act. A free act is something... Well, wait, give me one more necessary. Make that second one clear. You know, we have bumper stickers that say, I owe, not hi-ho, I owe money, mortgage, rent, bills, cards, got to buy food. I owe, I owe. So off to work I go. Okay, most of us do jobs we don't do for the pure joy in the job. Welcome to most of humanity. And therefore we go to work necessarily. Okay. But there's another bumper sticker on the other side of the car that says, I'd rather be... You can put fishing, but I hate that. So I'd rather be skiing or lying on a beach. In other words, I would rather freely do an act that I love just for the act itself. Okay, that's the difference between necessary and free. God always, outside of Himself, only acts out of pure freedom. He is sovereign. 
Psalm 135 declares, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Absolutely self-sufficient. His necessary acts is the essence of the dynamic of God Himself, the Holy Trinity. Everything else is free. Okay, then why did He create? Because if He's absolutely needless, doesn't need to go to the dentist to get some relief, or get more happy than He was before, then why did He create? If you're thinking, on the surface it seems like a contradiction. He has no needs and then He acts. And don't ever attribute to God He has no motive. Oh no, that'll be horrific. He has motive in all that he does. To think that God spun the universe into existence with torture chambers and cancer that kills six year olds and Holocaust that would be a horrific thought. I just created for no reason. Really, really, no goal in sight. No. And the Bible disagrees with the proposition God created for no purpose. You just open it up at the beginning. Genesis 1.1, all the way through the first chapter into the second chapter. And He did this and it was good. You can't say it's good unless there's some kind of goal or purpose in mind. It was good for what? For God's purposes. And ultimately, He created humanity in His own image. And it was very good. Why does He create? God's motive in creating was not to get something He did not already have. But it was to overflow that which He already is His glory, His eternal joy we talked about, to overflow all that He is outwardly into creation. To radiate the essence of His eternal being outward. In other words, He created in order to take His unbounded joy personified in the Holy Spirit and go outward with that glory, with that joy, in order to extend it through those who were made in His image, in order to double the joy that He is by definition. Not to get a joy He doesn't have. See, the reason it's true for us who are made in God's image when Paul says it is more blessed to give than it is to receive is because it's true for God. It's so wonderful. I'm going to create in order to bring you into the beauty and the wonder of this joy. And it makes me so happy to do so. See, God's bumper sticker in creation and redemption is I would rather be serving Joe and what I serve him 
is my glory to enjoy forever through my Son, Jesus Christ. The implication is that the essence of the true believer, a person, a sinner, deserves nothing and has been born again by God, the Holy Spirit, the essence of that is that the very delight and joy that God eternally has in God, personified in the Holy Spirit, has come into that dead, wrath-deserving heart in the person of God, the Holy Spirit, the essence of God's community of joy, and has infiltrated the heart and caused the dead sinner to awaken and to taste of the Spirit and to see that the Lord is good. Once you see that, then if you were here last week or listened to it online, once you see that, then the distinction that I was making last week between need love and benevolent love will make all the sense in the world to you. See, there's a difference between our love for God and God's love for us. Need love is when we, it's true of God, it's true of us, when we love an object for what the object gives to us that we need. Like oxygen. In other words, when you say, I love oxygen, you're not thinking, well, he loves, that's a loving act, that's wonderful. You have made a sandwich for oxygen because oxygen's hungry and you've helped oxygen out. You don't love oxygen that way. You love oxygen in the way that, let's look at us sinners. An alcoholic loves alcohol. That's what they look to. That's my happiness. At least right now, to impose its own sins, what I need. Or the drug addict with drugs. Or we with money. That's why Jesus says you cannot love God. I'm going to filter this in here now because it can't mean anything. You can't love God with need love and love money with need love at the same time. It's impossible. You can't be looking to both to be your ultimate source of satisfaction. The Psalm 42 one says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. Oh, the deer loves the water. That's why he's moving toward it. This is called worship or need. Love. Okay. Benevolent love, doing benevolent deeds to others, is when you love the other, the object in front of you, not to get from it what you need, but to provide him or her what they need from your abundance. And so, to put it in other words, what I've been saying is God in the Holy Trinity has and is, by definition, He who loves Himself with need, love, the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, so fully and personified in the Holy Spirit. His needs are always absolutely met. 
He loves himself when we love. It's not how he loves us. He loves us with benevolent love. He loves us as the objects to whom he finds such great joy in meeting our need as ends for us, for our good. And that's what his joy is. We are called to love God with need love. Not benevolent love. To the extent we try it, and we all try it, and in a sense the Galatian Christians were trying it because of the bad teachers coming in. It's called legalism. We try to say, somehow I do deeds and which benefit God and He's pleased with that and owes me something. It's called sin. We are to love God like oxygen. But much more than oxygen. Beyond this physical life. For everything. For in Him we live and we move and we have our being. We have to drink. Him is desperate creatures. That's the essence of loving God. That's the essence of worship. We're called to love others. Not that way. You will destroy them and we destroy each other. By so doing. But we are called to love each other with benevolent love. Out of the fullness of... okay. You're meeting my needs today, my soul needs, my relational needs, maybe it's money needs, it's food needs. Okay, you give me the time, or oh, I can spend the time, I can meet the need of that brother, that sister, that family member, this person that I have just met. I can meet their needs with loving deeds and acts out of my fullness, not to get something back from them, but for the joy that you find in overflowing God's love to you. Acts 17.25 declares, God is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. For from Him it is He Himself who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And therefore, creation is not the source of God's happiness. God is the source of God's happiness. And what motivates God to have created is not the need for what He doesn't have, but it is the expansion of the joy of His internal glory as Holy Trinity. In other words, His essence, glory, that's most often what glory means, His internal essence, and when it goes outward, like the sun goes outward, even though we, we feel the effects of it, that's His glory into creation. Benevolent love is why God loves us. It's why He sent His Son to save for His Son a bride in order that His glory would redound through that creation forever. This is the greatest 
impossible news because God created us to love us as ends. To take His unimaginable joy in Himself and to take sinners who deserve God's holy essence and wrath and turned it all around by God the Son becoming a human being in order to uphold the glory of God in saving sinners unto this joy forever. God's joy in Himself overflows in joyfully meeting the need of the saved. And therefore, when we talk like this, where where God moves, there's always acting for His own glory or for the extension of His own glory. Put that over here. And put this over here. He acts for our eternal good and our eternal joy. Those are not in contradiction. They're two sides of the same coin. So Isaiah the prophet prophesies about all the deities, the religions of the world, and if you study all the major religions of the world, you'll find this true. The God of the Bible is radically different. And Isaiah says he's different this way. From of old, no one is heard or perceived by ear. Nowhere. And no eye has seen a God besides you, Yahweh, who acts for those who wait for Him. That's what He's about. We don't ever work for God like an employee helps out an employer because he's needy and therefore owes the employee. And so, core value Number one is God and these foundational truths about God which practically means we ought to be a people who seek to really believe. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God All things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And then between that and the end of chapter 8 of Romans, He first lays out in large outline form redemption of the saved. And then, he says, this life may very well bring you unimaginable pain, torture, sword, life itself that some people say, i got to end it now. Angels, demons, principalities. 
But he ends the chapter with this. Neither height nor depth. Stop from it because this is a vapor's breath. Our mortal life. The Savior, the resurrected Jesus, is returning. And we will be raised with Him. And there will be no more pain. And therefore, Romans 8.28 is saying, if you understand this benevolent God towards you in Christ, He means it. All things are working together for your ultimate, eternal good laid up for you in heaven. Not necessarily next week. And that's why Peter says that even while crying, we rejoice in such a hope. And so, I never finished Paul's quote from Romans 8. So here it is. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, none of it will be able to separate us from the benevolent love of God overflowing to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is sovereign. He is in absolute control. And therefore, He is acting in order to maximize our eternal happiness. Then, the eternal joy of God, God who is Trinity is the foundation of everything. Of all creation and of all redemption. And therefore, at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, our passion should be to want to swim in that river. To want to drink from that fountain the glory of God's essence. We're to seek no matter what comes in life. And by definition, life is painful and joyful. We are to seek to be as happy and as filled and as contented as we could possibly be. Not with your wife or your husband or your children or your houses and your cars and your retirement. But to be as happy as we could be with God Himself. Through the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer. That eternal reward, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, laid up for you in heaven. That is what drives believers down here to lay down their lives the benefit of others. To hate their sin. To resist the worship of false gods like wives and husbands and children and money and businesses and everything else that is constantly tempting us to say, that's when I will be happy. The foundation of the local church in this world, it rests upon the conviction that Christianity at its core is God's eternal joy overflowing in mercy through the cross 
is He brings those people. Just here, it's a down payment, as Paul says. We have a down payment of the Spirit, but we ain't seen nothing yet. Listen to the stunning words of the Apostle Paul. First chapter of Second Thessalonians. When Jesus comes on that day, now watch it. Here's purpose. Here's a purpose clause. Okay. Why are you coming back, Jesus? When He comes on that day, in order to be glorified in Christians, the saints. Paul's not done. He says, let me make it clear. And to be, he's coming back in order to be marveled at. Grand Canyon cannot compare. To be marveled at among all who have believed. This, over the last 50 minutes, is what I mean by God-centeredness. God being glorified and saving us mercifully into the experience of His eternal happiness. His Holy Trinity. And Jesus went to the cross to purchase that for all who would believe. This is how God says it through Jeremiah the prophet about the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Jeremiah 32. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. And you've got to hear the heart of God the Father through His Son Jesus. Hear it. He's not done. Here it comes. I, Yahweh, will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. So let's be a people who pursue this joy God loves to give. And to pursue it while turning against all the trivialities of this world that want to constantly blind us to this unimaginable joy and contentment that God offers. Come on up. So I'm going to close by letting us in on the prayer of the Apostle Paul, which he is also praying for the likes of us, for all believers. And listen to how Paul, by the Holy Spirit, prays in 2 Thessalonians 1. To this end, Paul's got a goal in mind, we always pray for you that our God 
may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in you and every work of faith, faith meaning trusting in God's promises and in His commands, every work of faith by His power. And now here comes His purpose clause. This way we pray for you that, that you're being sanctified in other words. Why? So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. As the music is going to play, the cup, the bread will be passed out and if you are a baptized believer, Feel free to partake and hold those elements and we will pray over them together. Oh, but let us, by God's grace, in these closing minutes, truly adore Him with our hearts and thus flowing from our lips to the glory of His holy name.